You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to the DTB In This Issue podcast for Volume 48, Issue 5, May 2010. I'm Michael, Editor and Assistant on DTB, and with me is David Fazakali, Deputy Editor on DTB. Hello. In, in this issue, we start off with an editor on alcohol services entitled Alcohol Neglect, and here's David to explain a bit more about the article. Right, thank you. Well, what we know is that um, alcoholic-related deaths are increasing in the UK. Uh, hospitals patch up and mend people admitted with complications of alcoholic liver disease, uh, and these are increasingly complicated and expensive admissions. However, the concern that we raise is that once people are discharged from hospital, the support services that they need uh, vary very widely across the country. So what we use the editorial for is, is really to call for a, a, a well-resourced um, strategy so that there is uh, access to good services to support patients in the community. And it also seems as if there's quite a lot of discrepancy between the figures. We seem to state figures of alcohol-related deaths of between 9,000 and 40,000. Is this also part of the problem? Yes, and, and not knowing quite how big, big the issue is, uh, is, is in itself part of the difficulty in, in managing it and knowing what services should be in place. Thank you, David. There are various add-on therapies in the license in the UK with, for patients with type 2 diabetes. And in the second article this month, we discuss a new drug that has just been licensed, liraglutide. And David, perhaps you could explain a bit more. Yes, well, liraglutide is a glucagon-like peptide mimetic agent. We've already got one in this country called uh, exanatide that's already already licensed. Um, and this one, like uh, exanatide, acts on pancreatic cells, stimulates insulin secretion and decreases glucagon release. It's licensed for the treatment of adults with type 2 diabetes who've got insufficient uh, glycemic control, and it's used as part of dual or, or triple therapy. It's given as a once-daily subcutaneous injection, and what the guess the key issue is, is, is does it live up to the advertising claims and does it make a difference to outcomes for patients? So what we use this article for is examine the, the trials, comparing it with oral hyperglycemics, such as metformin, glimepiride and rosiglitazone, as well as trials of it as monotherapy, uh, which is an unlicensed use, and also comparisons with exenatide and insulin. But in terms of the outcomes, trials focus mainly on HbA1c levels, uh, weight and effects on blood pressure, rather than anything more uh, outcome-focused such as morbidity or, or mortality. And so the evidence at the moment really only uses those those surrogate markers. So we end up trying to set the evidence in context of, of the national guidance and giving a steer as to where we see uh, the place of liraglutide in the management of patients with type 2 diabetes. And I guess is that part of the question also with the advertising claims, whether or not they actually relate to, uh, to clinically relevant data or not? Yes, I guess two issues. One is are the benefits clinically relevant to patients and are the benefits over and above uh, what you see from the effects on, on the management of the, of the diabetes. In 2008, we reviewed Grazax, a new therapy for the treatment of hay fever. Since our review, there have been a few changes to the SPC, the summary product characteristics, and in our second article this month, Grazax for hay fever, what's new, we discussed these changes. Yes, the licence or the, the um, SPC for the drug has changed. Um, it's now marketed or, or is, is described as disease-modifying treatment and it's also had its licence extended to cover the use in children aged five and above. 
So the original trial that was published when the drug was first licensed covered the first year of treatment. And since then, patients have been followed up for up to three years with treatment and then for a further year without treatment. And this has been the basis of the, the new license application. So we examine that. We look at whether the, the uh, benefits that you see with patients appear to be clinically relevant and whether it, it actually affects the, the use of other treatments that patients would need to take for the management of their, of their hay fever. Thank you, David. Sounds very useful for this time of year. In the third and final article this month, we have a look at IV immunoglobulin therapy for infectious diseases. There is a reasonable amount of scientific rationale that suggests that IV immunoglobulin therapy is an effective treatment for infectious diseases, although whether or not this is backed up by clinical evidence is uncertain. Also, there is a limited supply of IVIG worldwide. And these are the issues that we look at in this article. And here's David to explain this a little further. The Department of Health has produced national guidance to help clinicians prioritise patients for appropriate IVIG therapy. And this covers infections such as CMV-induced pneumonitis, severe invasive group A streptococcal disease, staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome, and a a variety of others. So what we do is, is look at the evidence that supports all these uses and see whether the various conditions highlighted in the Department of Health guidance is actually backed up by by reasonable evidence and come to some conclusions about the priorities for for management. Thank you, David. And thanks for listening. To to read these articles and more, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.